Section three of Astounding Stories thirteen, january nineteen thirty one, by various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Dark Side of Entry by Sewell Peasley Wright. Part C. Through the television disc I searched the swamp. As I had half suspected, the filthy ooze held the young of this race of things, grub-like creatures that flipped their heavy bodies about in the slime, alarmed by the light which searched them out. All disintegrator rays on the swamp, I ordered. Sweep it from margin to margin. Let nothing be left alive there. I had a well-trained crew. The disintegrator rays massed themselves into a marching wall of death and swept up and down the swamp as a plough turns its furrows. It was easy to trace their passage, for behind them the swamp disappeared, leaving in its stead row after row of broad dusty paths. When we had finished there was no swamp. There was only a naked area upon which nothing lived, and upon which for many years nothing would grow. "'Good work,' I commended the disintegrator ray men. "'Cease action. And then to Corey, put her on her course again, please.' An hour went by. We passed several more of the strange, damp, circular cities, differing from the first we had seen only in the matter of size. Another hour passed, and I became anxious. If we were on our proper course, and I had understood the Chizzy messenger correctly, we should be very close to the governing city. We should— The waving beam of one of the searchlights came suddenly to rest. Three or four other beams followed it, and then all the others. "'Large city to port, sir,' called Croy excitedly. "'Thank you. I believe it is our destination. Cut all searchlights except the forward beam.' "'Mr. Corey. Yes, sir. You can take her over visually now. I believe. The forward searchlight beam will keep our destination in view for you. Set her down cautiously in the center of the city in any suitable place, and remain at the controls ready for any orders, and have the operating crew do likewise.' "'Yes, sir,' said Corey crisply. With a tenseness I could not control, I bent over the hooded television disc and studied the mighty governing city of the Chizzy. The governing city of the Chizzy was not unlike the others we had seen, save that it was very much larger, and had eight spoke-like streets radiating from its center, instead of four. The protective wall was both thicker and higher. There was another difference. Instead of a great open space in the center of the city, there was a central park-like space in the middle of which was a massive pile, circular in shape, and built, like all the rest of the city, of the black, sweating rock which seemed to be the sole building material of the Chizzy. We set the Urtak down close to the big circular building, which we guessed, and correctly, to be the seat of government. I ordered the searchlight ray to be extinguished the moment we landed, and the ethon tubes that illuminated our ship inside to be turned off so that we might accustom our eyes as much as possible to darkness, finding our way about with small ethon-tube flashlights. With a small guard I stood at the forward exit of the Urtak and watched the huge circular door back out on its mighty threads, and finally swing to one side on its massive gimbals. Croy, the only officer with me, and I both wore our menores, and carried full expeditionary equipment, as did the guard. The Chizzy messenger, grimacing and talking excitedly in his sibilant, whispering voice, crouched on all fours—he could not stand in that small space—and waited, three men of the guard on either side of him. I placed his menorah on his head, and gave him simple, forceful orders, picturing them for him as best I could. 
Go from this place and find others of your kind. Tell them that we would speak to them with things such as you have upon your head. Run swiftly. I will run, he conveyed to me, to those great ones who sent me. He pictured them fleetingly. They were creatures like himself, save that they were elaborately dressed in fine skins of several pale colors, and wore upon their arms, between their two elbows, broad circlets of carved metal which I took to be emblems of power or authority, since the chief of them all wore a very broad band. Their faces were much more intelligent than their messenger had led me to expect, and their eyes, very large and round, and not at all human, were the eyes of thoughtful, reasoning creatures. Doubled on all fours, the Chizzy crept through the circular exit and straightened up. As he did so, from out of the darkness a score or more of his fellows rushed up, gathering around him, and blocking the exit with their reedy legs. We could hear them talking excitedly in high-pitched, squeaky whispers. Then suddenly I received an expression from the Chizzy who wore the menorah. Those who are with me have come from those in power. They say one of you, and one only, is to come with us to our big men who will learn, through a thing such as I wear upon my head, that which you wish to say to them. You are to come quickly, at once. I will come, I replied. Have those with you make way. A heavy hand fell upon my shoulder. A voice spoke eagerly in my ear. Sir, you must not go. It was Croy, and his voice shook with feeling. You are in command of the Ertak. She, and those in her, need you. Let me go. I insist, sir. I turned in the darkness, quickly and angrily. Mr. Croy, I said swiftly, do you realize that you are speaking to your commanding officer? I felt his grip tighten on my arm as the reproof struck home. Yes, sir, he said doggedly, I do, but I repeat that your duty commands you to remain here. The duty of a commander in this service leads him to the place of greatest danger, Mr. Croy, I informed him. Then stay with your ship, sir, he pleaded craftily. This may be some trick to get you away, so that they may attack us. Please, can't you see that I am right, sir?" I thought swiftly. The earnestness of the youngster had touched me. Beneath the formality and the sirs there was a real affection between us. In the darkness I reached for his hand. I found it and shook it solemnly, a gesture of earth which it is hard to explain. It means many things. "'Then go, Andy,' I said softly. "'But do not stay long, an hour at the longest. If you are not back in that length of time, we'll come after you, and whatever else may happen, you can be sure that you will be well avenged. The Urtak has not lost her stinger." "'Thank you, John,' he replied. "'Remember that I shall wear my menorah. If I adjust it to full power, and you do likewise, and stand without the shelter of the Urtak's metal hull, I shall be able to communicate with you, should there be any danger.' He pressed my hand again, and strode through the exit out into the darkness which was lit only by a few distant stars. The long, slim legs closed in around him. Like a pygmy guarded by the skeletons of giants, he was led quickly away. The minutes dragged by. There was a nervous tension on the ship, the like of which I have experienced not more than a dozen times in all my years. No one spoke aloud. Now and again one man would mutter uneasily to another. There would be a swift, muttered response, and silence again. We were— Waiting. Waiting. Ten minutes went by. Twenty. Thirty. Impatiently I paced up and down before the exit, the guards at their posts ready to obey any orders instantly. Forty-five minutes. I walked through the exit, stepped out onto the cold hard earth. I could see behind me the shadowy bulk of the Ertak. 
Before me a black, shapeless blot against the star-sprinkled sky was the great administrative building of the Chizzy, and in there somewhere was Anderson Croy. I glanced down at the luminous dial of my watch. Fifty minutes. In ten minutes more— John Hanson! My name reached me, faintly but clearly, through the medium of my menore. This is Croy. Do you understand me? Yes, I replied instantly. Are you safe? I am safe. All is well. Very well. Will you promise me now to receive what I am about to send, without interruption? Yes, I replied thoughtlessly and eagerly. What is it? I have had a long conference with the chief or head of the Chizzy, explained Croy rapidly. He is very intelligent, and his people are much further advanced than we thought. Through some form of communication he has learned of the fight with the weird birds. It seems that they are, or were, the most dreaded of all the creatures of this dark world. Apparently we got the whole brood of them, and this chief, whose name I gather is Weisjen, or something like that, is naturally much impressed. I have given him a demonstration or two with my atomic pistol and the flashlight. These people are fairly stricken by a ray of light directly in the eyes, and we have reached very favorable terms. I am to remain here as chief bodyguard and adviser, of which he has need, for all is not peaceful, I gather, in this kingdom of darkness. In return, he is to give up his plans to subjugate the rest of Antri. He is sworn to do this by what is evidently to him a very sacred oath, witnessed solemnly by the rest of his council. Under the circumstances, I believe he will do what he says. In any case, the great canal will be filled in, and the Antrians will have plenty of time to erect a great series of disintegrator ray stations along the entire twilight zone, using the broad fan rays to form a solid wall against which the Chizzy could not advance even did they, at some future date, carry out their plans. The worst possible result, then, would be that the people in the sunlit portion would have to migrate from certain sections and perhaps would have day and night alternately, as do other worlds. This is the agreement we have reached. It is the only one that will save this world. Do you approve, sir? No. Return immediately, and we will show the Chizzy that they cannot hold an officer of the Special Patrol as a hostage. Make haste. It's no go, sir, came the reply instantly. I threatened them first. I explained what our disintegrator rays would do, and Weisgen laughed at me. This city is built upon great subterranean passages that lead to many hidden exits. If we show the least sign of hostility the work will be resumed on the canal, and before we can locate the spot and stop the work the damage will be done. This is our only chance, sir, to make this expedition a complete success. Permit me to judge this fact from the evidence I have before me. Whatever sacrifice there is to make, I make gladly. Weiss Chen asks that you depart at once and in peace and I know this is the only course. Good-bye, sir. Convey my salutations to my other friends upon the old Ertak, and elsewhere. And now, lest my last act, as an officer of the Special Patrol Service, be to refuse to obey the commands of my superior officer, I am removing the Minori. Good-bye. I tried to reach him again, but there was no response. Gone. He was gone, swallowed up in darkness and in silence. Dazed, shaken to the very foundation of my being, I stood there between the shadowy bulk of the Ertak and the towering mass of the great silent pile that was the seat of government in this strange land of darkness, and gazed up at the dark sky above me. I am not ashamed now to say that hot tears trickled down my cheeks, 
nor that as I turned back to the Ertak my throat was so gripped by emotion that I could not speak. I ordered the exit closed with a wave of my hand. In the navigating room I said but four words. We depart at once. At the third meal of the day I gathered my officers about me and told them as quickly and as gently as I could of the sacrifice one of their number had made. It was Kincaid who, when I had finished, rose slowly and made reply. Sir, he said quietly, we had a friend. Some day he might have died. Now he will live forever in the records of the service, in the memory of a world, and in the hearts of those who had the honor to serve him. Could he, or we, wish more? Amid a strange silence he sat down again, and there was not one eye among us that was dry. I hope that the snappy young officer who visited me the other day reads this little account of bygone times. Perhaps it will make clear to him how we worked, in those nearly forgotten days, with the tools we had at hand. They were not the perfect tools of to-day, but what they lacked we somehow made up. That fine old motto of the service, nothing less than complete success, we passed on unsullied to those who came after us. I hope these youngsters of to-day may do as well. End of Part C and End of the Dark Side of Antry by Sewell Peasley Wright